Welcome, party people, to another rough-and-tumble, high-flying, death-defying episode of The George Sanders Show. Uh, this week, we'll be discussing two films, as usual. Uh, the Three Musketeers from director Paul W.S. Anderson and Don Chafee's 1963 film Jason and the Argonauts. We'll also talk about some people that passed away in the last fortnight. Um, we'll talk about autism and uh, the act of killing, which is, for some reason, a big deal, uh, you know, 18 months after it came out. <laughs> uh, with me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. How are you? I am okay, Mike. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, I, I'd like to apologize to everybody out there. Um, this is the second time in, like, I don't know, what, three or four shows where we've had to delay the posting of the show um, due to errors on my end. Um, this time it was a little more, you know, it was a little out of my hands. The DVD copy of The Three Musketeers, I acquired uh, was scratched and so i could have lied and just pretended like i watched the movie but i can't do that to you so i had to uh, get us a, a new copy and it, it took a couple of days for me to do that so thank you all for being patient with me thank uh, you sean for being patient with me that's okay on last week's episode uh i don't i don't know if you noticed because you don't you don't actually listen to these um i, I failed to include the the clip from the movie chicago <laughs> that we introduced so that's right. You only the best here at the George Sanders show. Lots of, we need to to fire our quality control assistant. <laughs> well, you get what you paid for. You know what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah well, uh, we got a lot to talk about. So, shall we dive into a discussion of the Three Musketeers? Yeah, and hopefully, here is a clip from it. <laughs> there are things in this world worth fighting and dying for. We're warriors. It's who we are. It's what we do. The three musketeers. I came to Paris to be one of you. D'Artagnan, you want to be a musketeer? This is your chance. We live in a kingdom controlled by fear. Cardinal rules the land. Buckingham rules the skies. When you war machines will readdress the balance. And she is the deadliest assassin the world has ever seen. Together, they will unleash war on the entire continent. We're the musketeers. It's up to us to put an end to the Cardinal's plot. I could do with some exercise. All for one. And one for all! That was a clip from the most recent version of The Three Musketeers uh, from 
2011 um, from director Paul W.S. Anderson, who has a new film out, uh, Pompeii, which is kind of the reason uh, we're, we're talking about this at all. Um, the film is, you know, most everybody knows the story, whether you've read the source material um, from Alexander Dumas or not. Um, you've probably seen a number of, of versions of this. Um, we talked about it briefly uh, a few episodes ago um, where you talked about the Richard Lester version uh, or versions. There, there are two movies in that. Um, but the story is a young man wants to join the Musketeers. His name is D'Artagnan. He's a you know country boy coming to the big city. Um, and the three Musketeers are kind of like the Ninja Turtles of their time. And, uh, you know, they... They take this kid under their wing, begrudgingly at first. You know, he kind of uh, gets on their, their bad side and challenges them to duels or whatever. Anyway, long story short, there's a bad guy, Cardinal Richelieu, and they, uh, you know, they have to steal some jewels and blah, 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 blah. We've all heard the Three Musketeers. Do I really need to set it up, Sean? I don't think so. So, uh, the reason we're talking about this in a way is, you know, there's been discussion of the whole... Um, vulgar vulgar auteurism uh idea and you kind you like think was it a year ago you started kind of wading into the 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 muck as it were on this um and you saw Pompeii just recently you're one of the few people that did as far as i know uh <laughs> my question for you what's interesting to me is that um i when i went to rate this in letterbox the the three musketeers uh, you've seen it twice now. This was your second viewing. And the first time you saw it, you gave it a three stars uh, review, uh, which is pretty middling for you. Uh, you rarely go below a three. Um, but then this time, you pointedly gave it a four star review. So I'm, I'm interested to see what in this film or, or what in your you know, uh, opinion has changed um, in the last year since you last saw this film, and, and why do you rate it higher now? Well, I think I, think I gave it three and a half before. I don't think you did, Sean. Sure. Well, when I went to, to, to change my rating of it, it went from three and a half to four. So maybe I changed it from the initial review. Your original, uh, your original review says three stars. Okay, but then and then you know at, at some subsequent point in the last year, I might have upped that to three and a half. Okay, and then, well, what's well, the then, question? And then now stands. I upped it to, to four. So uh, so why is it why is it going up? Is it you or is it the, is it the movie or is there more to more to this movie than uh, I got out of it? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Tell me the, why the, I'm the, the the first time I saw it, there's 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 two things about this movie, and and they kind of apply to Paul W S Anderson in general. And the first is that his movies are really cool looking. They're very well shot. They're very well put together. Uh, he is is interesting visually. Uh, the other is that the dialogue in his movies is awful. It's so bad. It it's, is. It's, it's really bad, and it might be. This might be the worst, the most kind of cliche written of of any of his movies. And you know, maybe in the past year, that has become less of a drawback for me. I started to write down when I was taking notes for this film. I started to write down the the lines that were like so obvious um, because we've heard them so many times and I just started giving up after I gave up after a while because I was just running out of paper you know I mean the, there are lines like at least she died the same way she lived 
on her own terms. And, you know, I mean, just these things that, you, you, you know. Yeah, in, in the big Paul Davis Anderson essay I wrote, I, I, I characterized Three Musketeers as, as a compendium of every 80s action movie cliche line you could think of. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, but what it what it doesn't have is is the the kind of awesome Arnold Schwarzenegger one liner puns, right. like uh, you know, "Ice to see you," or right. uh, when uh, he uh, in Commando when he uh, impales the the villain with like a steel pipe into like a, a boiler and steam shoots out of the the steel pipe. Yeah, he says uh, uh, the guy's name is Matrix because that's an awesome villain name. <laughs> says hey matrix why don't you let off some steam yeah well okay i think this is a, this is a good point to bring up because um because those lines okay those lines are different because you know yeah they, they're obviously punny or whatever but schwarzenegger movies also have all of these really cliched kind of lines that are in three musketeers and i think part of the problem with this movie is that there's Nobody and you know Schwarzenegger's not a, a good actor, really. I mean, he does what he does really well, but um, but he ha- he has personality up the wazoo, and it just comes out when he's on screen, um, whatever he's in. You know, even the schlockiest stuff. Um, you know, Schwarzenegger's having fun, even saying these really ridiculous or stupid lines. And the, I think my big problem with the Three Musketeers here is that. Um, there are maybe a couple of people that are trying to do something like that, but at least the main cast, the the four musketeers, um, are so bland and and it doesn't seem uh, the oh, guy. I think, that, I think I think most of them are. I think I think Ray Stevenson as as Porthos is really good, and he was going to be my exception because yeah. I know him from Rome, and yeah, he, uh, was, he was great on Rome. Yeah, and uh, you know I could you know he. he but the problem with his character, with, with Porthos, is um, he has, like, two kind of interesting or, or, or great moments at the beginning of the movie. And then he's not really given anything to do for the rest of the film, which is uh, unfortunate. Um, but, God, the others – and your review your, – speaking of your Letterboxd review, um, the, your current one, the one you did uh, for your second viewing – mentioning why does everybody look like Orlando Bloom? And it's totally true. There's uh, – <laughs> the guy, the guy who plays Aramis, I, I had to, I had to look it up halfway through the movie because I knew Orlando Bloom was in this, but I couldn't figure out if he was Buckingham or if he was Aramis or if he was playing both roles. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> so anyway, and and there's just a blandness to the whole thing that you know, and Orlando Bloom, he he's dressed, he's kind of like. Liberacied up or whatever, like he's he's got this really you know interesting coif, and he's you know it's supposed to kind of be hammy, at least I think it is, but he's not really good in that kind of role. Yeah, um, he's the the supporting actors are are generally much better than than the, uh, the guy who plays D'Artagnan is is really kind of bland. That's oh, uh, he's he's yeah Logan he's, Lerman. Yeah, uh, Matthew McFadden as as Athos is is okay, uh, but it's really it's Mila Jovovich and uh, and Christoph Waltz who are having the most fun in the movie, and they give the best performances, I think. Uh, yeah, but that's not saying much. Like I, I I even think you know, and I like Christoph Waltz a lot. You know, 
he he doesn't come through this unscathed. And I, th- I think the big problem for me is that the two of them are tasked with doing this uh, throughout the film, these um, scenes of just exposition that are kind of like setting up what's going to happen next. And it's the two of them talking to each other. Um, and it's just, in, it just goes on and it, it's um, boring as all hell <laughs> when they're talking to each other. Um, you just want, I don't know. I, yeah, I think it, I think it moved faster this, my second time through it. Uh, and maybe it's because I was like focusing less on the plot which uh, doesn't need to be focused on, and more on just like the little nuances of the performance or or the set design. Uh, I also think Ed, that as you know, I watched most of of Anderson's movies last year, and and I, I was trying to like figure out kind of what made him tick as an auteur, as like an experiment in in uh, you know trying out vulgar auteurism and seeing how it works compared to to more classical auteurism. And one of the conclusions I came to was that all of his movies are built around these kind of cliches, not just not just in the dialogue, but also in just the the situations of the plots are are all very referential to previous films. Like every every episode in the Resident Evil series takes its model on another uh, you know classic sci-fi action film. And there are there are sequences in the Three Musketeers that are, are that kind of are absurdly based on parts of other movies. There's the the opening sequence, uh, which ends with a line straight out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's a, a blimp fight that is pretty much identical to the final battle in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> and it's I you know it's it's odd it's. I, so but, he but, does it so much that you have to say it's intentional that he's kind of you know reconfiguring these modern myths and to create you know new kind of forms, kind of melding the the Dumas story with more modern versions of that. Like you know, Star Trek has a modern swashbuckler, Indiana Jones has a modern swashbuckler, and it, it's creating an odd kind of yeah, it's cliche, but it's also kind of interesting the way that he plays off these these kind of different worlds into the same form i'm not buying it I, like <laughs> i'm sorry but like if if he's gonna do that it should still at least be fun and uh effective and it's and for me uh, at least it's not like the blimp fight is is really intolerable um there's like not an ounce of excitement in it whatsoever it just kind of sits there but i will say i I don't want to completely you know just tear this guy apart or whatever um because i wanted to like this i really did i've always liked the three musketeers story um i think we talked about that when we were talking about richard lester and um and you know i i wanted to you know give it you know a a fair shake and and so there are certain things that i really like i really like the um prologue which um goes through this like 3d map and shows um it's kind of it's kind of like the intro to game of thrones a little bit where it's this this kind of animated uh i don't know like game board or whatever it's like a game of risk or something played out during this this prologue that's really cool and then when anderson shows you the inner workings of like certain contraptions like there's the scene where they're breaking into da vinci's vault which you know, of course, that 
never happened. <laughs> but um, and he but shows it, it did happen in Hudson Hawk, though. Well, <laughs> there you go. Um, and it, and the, it's booby trapped, um, like you said, kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark ish. Um, and I like that he there's a pan that goes from the hallway that they get into to like through the wall to show you these. Um, these uh, crossbows that are, are set up to you know to be triggered when anybody walks into the room and stuff. Um, that stuff is really cool. When he's showing the inner workings and he seems to be really interested in that kind of stuff, that's cool. But when it comes to like an action sequence, unfortunately, that section right there, he does this really cool thing where he where he pans to the crossbows and then he like pulls back to show you there's like you know whatever 25 of them or whatever and that's a really invigorating kind of shot that he does but then it goes right from that into this like um proto matrix you know bullet time thing where uh jovovich you know runs down this corridor while all of these spikes and stuff are shot out at her but it does it in slow motion and she does the you know the bend the keanu reeves bend your back kind of thing and it's like it that, I, I really like it she ends it with like a, a little kind of smile and and wink as uh as she she slides through safely i, 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 I think that's cool but it's but that goes but it's so obvious and it's so cliche. Like you're talking about cliches. Yeah. Like what is that? I don't know. I, don't know. Like, I, I think I think he he deals well when you're when you're talking about Anderson and and action. You have to compare him not to like the the best action directors, but to his contemporaries in Hollywood, and he's vastly superior. To well, uh, to speak. like a, a Paul Greengrass or something like that. Like uh, you, you know, you talk about the the influence of the Matrix, and that is all over Anderson's work, and it's all over pretty much all of the the best action filmmaking. Like even even Hong Kong has an escape that kind of uh, digital effects uh, slow motion uh, effect that uh, you see a really good example in the the big. Uh, sword fight in the square where the three musketeers and d'artagnan are set on by the the cardinal's guards and there's this big fight scene with the four of them against 40 of the guards and and anderson will, will shoot it in in relatively long takes and uh like a, a a musketeer will be like sweeping through some guards and it'll be at normal speed and then it'll slow down at the point that like the the swords you know impact the guard and then it'll speed up again and then it'll slow down and it, it, it creates like a, a really cool kind of punctuation effect of uh, the, the impact of the blows while still giving you like the, the neat formal element of the, the bodies in choreographed motion. Well, I, you know, I, I can't speak to his contemporaries much because I don't really – I don't seek these movies out and it's not my, I don't know, kind of thing. And so – you're right. In terms of like someone like a Christopher Nolan or something, yeah, I think the fight stuff in this is better than anything in the Batman stuff. Um, I'll give you that. Um, but it's still uh, there's there are moments like that. I think that first sword fight scene that you're you're mentioning there is probably the best one in the movie. Um, the one that takes place at the end where um, it's D'Artagnan and. Uh, the guy with the eye patch, um, um, Mads Mikkelsen as as Rochefort, right? Um, I really like that fight sequence too. See, I, that, I actually rewound that one and watched it twice. 
<laughs> to me, I don't know. It, I maybe it was just exhaustion at that point after an hour and a half of this or something where I was just checked out or something. But um, I also think it was a, a reference to the end of uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, where there's a fight on a cathedral rooftop. <laughs> well, that could be the case but i mean once again what's the point like well why are you referencing well you, you you talk about uh well that that's the thing is is part of the the joy of a paul ws anderson movie and it's an odd joy it's a it's a particularly cinephiliac joy is is in spotting the the weird references and like yeah but saying, then it turns right it, and it it's that it's interesting and it's fun, but that's not the same thing as it being good. Yeah, it's, it's not, like the artist, you know? Like, you watch the artist and you're like, oh, there's the score from Vertigo. Why the fuck is the score from Vertigo in here? Well, or, you it, know? Makes, it makes a little more sense, the, the action movie references that he's using, than, than that did. That was just completely nonsensical. But, you know, you have, you have a big fight sequence on the top of a cathedral between uh you know an uh uh individual versus a representative of the monolithic state you know it it makes a kind of sense it's not inappropriate <laughs> uh, <laughs> not in the way that the vertigo music is in in the artist well I mean, that means it, it's it's yes it's it's a game of, of catch the reference and and no that doesn't make it good but it it does make it fun so no, it I, I have i have a lot of fun <laughs> with this movie <laughs> Okay. I mean, that's, you know, I can't argue with your enjoyment or whatever. Um, yeah, to me, this is just, I, I wish this was something other than what I was expecting going in. Um, but it really was just a very bland, you know, CGI kind of heavy, um, inert. I, 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 I do wish that, that Anderson had a, a writing partner who was who was really interesting yeah <laughs> and, so and, he... and he doesn't he he pretty much writes things himself i think he has co-writers but he seems to be like the the kind of sole auteur behind almost all of his movies what 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 he needs to be like a, a really great filmmaker as opposed to a a good filmmaker whose primary virtue is uh uh is unpretentiousness <laughs> Uh, he needs somebody like like Waikafai, who works with with Johnny Toe, and and really kind of pushes Toe and experiments with with film form and and generic form, and has lots of interesting ideas about the world. And the the yeah. two of them have a great partnership. Whereas Anderson has a, a a really strong visual sense. He has you know this these really f interesting recurring motifs in this film like the the maps that you talk about and there's also like the great uh, kind of chessboard europe that's on the floor of of Richelieu's chambers uh this big white room uh and that's that's really cool stuff and it, if it was wedded to a a screenplay that was as interesting as his visual sense is then he could make a really great film yeah, but I mean, you know, I don't want to compare him to Johnny Toe, but like when you watch a Johnny Toe film, Johnny Toe is kind of he's pushing the form. He's 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 doing new things and like um sure it it's kind of beholden to this tradition, you know, certain other, you know types of films that he does or whatever, but like he he's to me, he seems, and, and not not speaking in terms of 
the writing, but like visually and the way he 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 lays things out, he seems like he's much more inventive than than someone like Paul Anderson who's doing like you said, riffs or, or, or referencing things. Um, and maybe I'm just not as familiar with the stuff that Johnny Toe's stealing from. Maybe that's probably very likely, but, um, I, I don't know. I, 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 I I know what you're saying. I can see if, if he got, if Anderson got a decent script, I, I can see him making a decent movie based on this alone. I can't see him making a great movie necessarily. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's, it's, it, it, it's hard to say. Uh, I actually, I, I really like Pompeii, uh, and it's, it's one of the movies that, that kind of puts his, his weaknesses as a writer and kind of makes it a strength. If you're, if you're willing to go along with the kind of earnest love story in it, that is very cliche. Uh, is Jovovich in it? Uh, no, she's not. Oh, She's his wife, right? Are they together? Yeah, that? they have been for for a few years. They met on the the Resident Evil films. This is they, Pompeii is his first film without her. I think since Death Race in in two thousand eight. But uh, yeah, she's she's a little old for the part in in uh, in Pompeii. It's more of a, a younger girl. Yeah, um, she'll always be the stoner chicken dazed and confused uh for me but um you know what i hate about this movie the most though uh and this is a problem that you know even great movies do um it's like the back to the future part two syndrome is it ends with a cliffhanger like setting up a sequel um that like it there's there's a little bit of closure at the end of the story but then it tacks on this thing at the end um and I hate when movies do that. I, even if the movie's already been made, like, for example, Back to the Future 2 was filmed simultaneously with 3, so they knew they were going to do a third one anyway. Um, but I hate... You, you, you come out of the movie with the sense of, like, you only got half a story or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, um, Well, I mean, that's, that's also how... That's how the Musketeers stories end. With cliffhangers, they they are serials, and and serials end with cliffhangers. So it's it's true to the form to to end it the way he does. I I would watch uh, a, another one, the Four Musketeers. I would watch that. No, I, well, I'm not saying yeah, but but it's it's. I mean, it's not going to get made because his movies don't make very much money. Um, I think they're they're reasonably profitable. I think the Resident Evil movies have gotten more and more profitable as they've gone on. But this one, I think, and and now Pompeii was was a, a disappointment at the box office. So it's yeah. unlikely we'll see another one. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like to to me, it's it's tacking it. Like sure, make a sequel. I mean, you know, I'm you know, I have my issues with sequels. Period. But um, but you don't need to at the end of this movie that you've paid to see to have, you know, someone that you expect, you know, so I don't want to get into the whole cliffhanger thing, but yeah, it's annoying. Let me just say that. But so, so you've seen, okay. So we talked about crank, uh, on, on the show previously, and that also falls under the same kind of vulgar autism spiel deal. Um, do, how, do you think Anderson is the cream of the crappy crop? 
Uh, I mean, it, it's hard to say. Like, uh, I went through and and uh, in you know in 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 trying to define him as an auteur, I was trying to place him in in one of Andrew Saris's categories because uh, in in the American cinema uh, in 1968, Andrew Saris famously creates these categories that how where he groups directors. There's like the Pantheon, and then there's the far side of paradise and expressive esoterica and, and so on less than meets the eye. And so he would, he would talk about these various Hollywood directors and, and then place them based on where they compare to their, their peers and how fully they meet the criteria of, of being an, an auteur as, as Sarah sees it. And, uh, Generally, when people talk about vulgaratorism, they like to place them in the expressive esoterica category, which is uh, kind of directors who do kind of weird experimental things within mainstream film, and and their appeal is is primary visual as primarily visual as opposed to you know in the the stories or the actors. You know, somebody like Edgar G. Ulmer, who's making like zero budget movies at Poverty Row Studios throughout the nineteen forties. Would would go into that category. Uh, Anderson for me, I think, is is more in in lightly likable, <laughs> which, well, which not is, a- is not a bad category. I mean, there's there's directors there that that I really like, like like Delmer Daves or uh, George Sidney, and and those are you know that they are likable filmmakers. Uh, Neville Dean and Taylor, who are the the directors of Crank. Uh, they haven't really made enough movies for me to say yet. Like I've, I've liked, you know, two or three of their movies a lot and one, eh, not so much. Uh, John Himes, uh, I've only seen two of his films, so it's way too early to say for him. His, uh, the last two Universal Soldier movies, I thought were, were much more interesting than any of, uh, of W.S. Anderson's films. Anderson has the most, He's been working the longest. He's made the most movies of of any of those people in that group. Well, he's been making movies longer than uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, hasn't he? Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, the Mortal Kombat movie. I think was yeah. was either his first or second movie that came out in like nineteen ninety five. Uh, so he, he's had a longer career. He's a more established director. He's it's easier to to kind of uh, pin him down as an auteur than it is for for the other kind of newer action directors. Uh, somebody like Tony Scott is more, I think, in the expressive esoterica category. I think he's he's a better filmmaker than, than Anderson. Yeah. Um, well... But, but that's the, the thing about the auteur theory is it's always contingent. There's always more evidence, you know, to be uncovered. So it's, all, it's a work in progress. Well, we'll be discussing that later in the show. <laughs> uh, well, with that, with that, uh, that's our discussion of uh, the Three Musketeers. Um, I'm going to leave it on a cliffhanger. Um, <laughs> the conversation's dead. But wait, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's going to rise from the grave. In, it's going to rise uh, from the grave. Too. That's right. Uh, what are we listening to music-wise this week? Uh, well, there is... Uh, Famously, in Paul W.S. Anderson's Three Musketeers, uh, a lot of Zeppelins, uh, as there were <laughs> in, in Dumas' original novel. Uh, yes, that's right. Yes. They were all over the place. 
<laughs> so we're going to listen to 99 Luft Balloons. So speaking of balloons, what's Mike watching? I don't know what that means, but, uh, well, I think I mentioned it on the last show that uh, March is Western month. Uh, the missus and I were, were making our way through a bunch of films, most of them we haven't seen, and we're trying to get to one Western a day, and we've succeeded thus far, although a couple of days it's been, you know, watching a Looney Tunes, you know, Yosemite Sam short or something, because... Uh, you know, there are not enough hours in the day. But anyway, so we've been watching a lot of westerns. Um, some that I've been meaning to see for a long, long time uh, that were totally amazing, like uh, My Darling Clementine, which I just adored. I think it's just great. Um, and some that I had been meaning to see for years that I think is are terrible, like uh, High Plains Drifter from Glen <laughs> Eastwood, which is a... Uh, a terrible, terrible movie. But uh, the one that I want to talk about... I like High Plains Drifter. I, I hate... It is dark. It is stupid. That movie <laughs> is so dumb. Like, like... I haven't, that, I haven't seen it in years. I just remember it being really kind of bleakly awesome. I mean, in theory, it kind of is, but... In execution, it is so moronic. Like it, it I, I don't want to go off on a tangent on it, but like basically, it lays out its its central conceit in maybe the first I don't know ten minutes of the movie, and then proceeds to just like play that out. Um, and it's it it's just it's it's stupid, and it's it, it's it's a gross movie, and it not I like, I like dark definitely. stuff, but it's you know. I don't know. It, it's, it ain't pretty. Anyway, the one that I, I want to talk about, um, because it was kind of off my radar um, completely, I just happened to randomly hit it, was uh, 40 Guns um, from uh, Samuel Fuller. Yeah, she's Whew! a high-riding woman with a whip. 
that movie, I was really, I mean, I saw, you know, Samuel Fuller, Barbara Stanwyck. I was like, okay, this is going to be pretty awesome. But, and, and Stanwyck, she was pushing 50 when she made this thing and she kills it. Like she does this stunt where she's dragged by a horse and it's really her doing it. And, uh, I mean, she's just the epitome of badass. I mean, she's just totally amazing. Um, but if you want to talk about bleak and dark, yeah. This movie is freaking depressing, and I love every second of it. Oh my gosh, it's fantastic! Um, so yeah, Forty Guns, totally awesome. Do you have any suggestions for westerns that I may have not seen that I should get to um, in the next uh, three weeks or so? Uh, hmm. Anything jump out at you? Uh, the uh, a couple of uh, of lesser known. Uh, John Ford ones. I don't know if you've seen all the John Ford westerns, but uh, stuff like Wagon Master or Two Road Together or Sergeant Rutledge. Uh, I've I've seen Wagon Master. Adore it. I think it's amazing. I love it. Um, I I haven't seen the other two. I think um, they're on my list though to get to. So I will let you know what I think of those. Um, yeah, Two Two Road Together might be his his bleakest movie. It's got uh, Jimmy Stewart and Richard Widmark, and it's it's like uh, I, I like to describe it as as the Searchers for people who didn't understand that the Searchers is anti racist. <laughs> uh, that sounds like a winner. And then, uh, and then Sergeant Rutledge uh, stars Woody Strode as a, uh, a cavalry officer who is wrongly accused of uh, raping and murdering a, a white woman on the frontier, and uh, it's pretty awesome. And yeah, he, I mean, he is fantastic in it. When we finished uh, My Darling Clementine, I said, you know what? After Western Month, we should just do John Ford year and just like watch every John Ford movie. Because, I mean, I've seen, you know, he's one of those guys that I've seen countless films from him, but he's got another like hundred that I haven't seen. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. Like, I, I, uh, I have. You know, every every year I do this this list of all the movies I saw for the first time that year, and and every year there's three or four John Ford movies on it because I, I like to to save them up and parcel them out. I don't want to watch like sixty John Ford movies all in one year. I want to to always have more John Ford movies to watch. So, yeah, I knew a girl uh, who she uh, she loved Steely Dan, mm. loved them. But she, I don't remember which album because I can't stand Steely Dan. Um, but she, she, one of their records from like their heyday, like the seventies, you know, she had never listened to, and she was saving it for like old age because she would then have, you know, a, a new, a new to her Steely Dan album to listen to. Right. It's like uh, Desmond on Lost had like the the one Charles Dickens book that he hadn't read, and he was saving it so it would be the last book that he ever read. I don't I can't know, remember which one it was. It was like the Pickwick <laughs> Papers or something. But yeah, yeah, the same, so, same, same theory. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's what I've been watching. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really enjoying it. It's a, it's a great month. I, I don't get to as often as some other people that I know that are really into film really get to dive deep into a genre or a director consistently, um, or for like a you know a, a concentrated period of time. I usually. I'm so scatterbrained. I'll watch like, you know, I was going to watch all the, um, you know, Mickey Mouse shorts. And so I watched like three of them and then I forgot and <laughs> or whatever. So, you know, it, it's, it's really cool to, to do something like this. So I'm into it. 
Cool. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about this week's news, which uh, starts off on uh, on a kind of dour note and and gets more depressing as it goes along. So. <laughs> Uh, it's actually, that, that, it's actually, that's the George Sanders show in a nutshell. <laughs> it's actually not this week's news. It happened, uh, a couple weeks ago now, but, uh, but we only do a show every couple of weeks now. So we still want to talk about, uh, there are our persons of the week and that is, uh, Harold Ramis and Alain Rene, who, uh, both recently died and it, we're very sad about it. Yeah. It's a, it's a bummer. Um, I can't really, this is me, you know, turning in my, you know, credit card. I actually don't have, I haven't seen any Renee. I'm a terrible person. Um, you are a terrible person. I know. I like, I, I don't know why anybody gives me the time of day, but I, I've been meaning to rectify it. And it long before, Renee passed. I, you know, it wasn't, but I just, uh, I haven't gotten to it. I'm so, I'm so sorry. You, you should be. I've, I've only seen seven of his, of his features and, uh, the, the first three and, and, uh, the three most recent ones that have been released here, his, his last film, uh, just premiered, I think in Berlin earlier this year. I think so. I think that's right. Uh, but I've seen, seen the three before that, and then one from the the middle of his career. But uh, the the first two, uh, Hiroshima Monomore and uh, Last Year at Marion Bad, are are essential movies for for any movie fan. And uh, it, there's not really much I I can add to the discussion of them. You just you have to see them. Uh, I really like the the recent ones as well, especially uh, Wild Grass from I think two thousand nine, which is a really really odd and and fun movie made by a guy in his late eighties, and that's the the cool thing about about Rene is he was he was always you know very serious and very very intellectual a filmmaker and very kind of experimental with with film style. But his his movies are still really humane and really quirky and and fun. Maybe not necessarily funny. Like Hiroshima Monomore in particular is is very bleak. But there's a there's a, a kind of there's an energy and a, and a spark to Rene's movies that was still there after he'd been making films for you know, almost sixty years. So yeah, he, he was I, fantastic. Yeah. I, I will rectify it. I I promise. After Western Month, it's on. Okay. April. Uh, and there's another death that that happened uh, right around the same time. Uh, Harold Ramis, uh, writer, actor, producer, um, you know, director, dire- director of Groundhog Day and uh, a bunch of other films, uh, also passed away. Um, and. I've seen some Ramus stuff. Yeah, I bet you have. <laughs> if you can believe it, <laughs> uh, you know. I th- I think uh, in, in terms of at least uh, directorial work, I think uh, you can't beat Groundhog Day. Um, you know, I I actually don't like Caddyshack. I I think Caddyshack is totally unfunny, and I think we've had this argument on the show before. Um, I just don't understand the appeal of that movie, but. Uh, Groundhog Day. I, I rewatched it, and I got I talked my wife into rewatching it because she did not like it either, and uh, she liked it more this time. She laughed. Well, that's good. I, I was very um, happy. Yeah, you know, um, 
I haven't seen any, you know, I've been intrigued by the ice harvest because I've heard that it's, you know, it's bleak and surprisingly good and it just bombed. Um, but I have, have you seen any of the later stuff like uh, that or? I haven't. I think, uh, uh, I think Groundhog Day is actually the last of his movies that I saw other than like his, uh, he acted in Knocked Up, I think. Right. You but, mean you, uh, you, you, didn't uh, see, you didn't see Stuart saves his family? I, 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 some somebody in my apartment when I was in college rented Stuart Saves His Family and and I walked out of it and went nice. to go do something else. <laughs> it just it it looked uh, it looked really depressing. I've heard it's actually really depressing. Yeah. Um, which I was just, yeah, actually, I was kind not of in the mood me. for like a depressing Al Franken, right? <laughs> uh, at at age you know nineteen or whatever. Uh, but sure. uh, Harold Ramis is. Like I, I grew up in the 1980s, and there are a few people more more influential on the comedy of the 1980s than than Harold Ramis, you know, writing it at SCTV and writing Animal House and and Caddyshack and starring in Ghostbusters and Stripes and uh, so yeah, it's 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 really sad because I I think uh, comedy tends to not travel well between generations. So I don't I don't know if the kids today love you know Ghostbusters or or Animal House the way that that people of my generation do, but sure. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's it's just sad. Yeah, no, I, feel, total... I feel I feel bad. <laughs> you should. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, we can always find solace in watching Groundhog Day for the you know billionth time or whatever. Well, did I ever talk? Well, we're we're doing like the the 1984 thing this year. At, at the end of the year, we're going to give out our our 1984 movie awards, and I'm really looking forward to rewatching Ghostbusters. Me too, because I haven't, I actually haven't seen you know um, Ghostbusters in a really long time. I like you know Back to the Future and some of the other 80s films of that ilk. Um, I've seen more recently, but Ghostbusters, it's been a while. I, I watched it a couple of years ago, maybe three three or four years ago. And yeah. it, it seemed to me that it was a perfect comedy. Yeah. Well, or it's, a, at least a perfect 1980s comedy. It's better than its sequel. Um, yeah. Which, you know, I think I've seen, the, I've actually think I've seen Ghostbusters 2 more because I think, wasn't it on HBO or something all yeah. the freaking time? Yeah. Um, I just remember that guy in the painting um, looking really creepy. But um, he looks, he looks exactly like Klaus Kinski. I know, he totally but, does. But he's not Klaus Kinski. <laughs> and I think we needed Klaus Kinski to be in that movie because um, a film with Klaus Kinski and Peter McNichol interacting all the time <laughs> would just be the best movie ever. It, it would be pretty great. It's true. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so people died again. You know, that needs to stop happening. People just need to stop stop. You know, dying. Yeah. Speaking of people dying, let's talk about the act of killing. Oh, yes. Okay. I, I see your transition there. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about it. So uh, in the last, I don't know, couple of weeks, there's kind of been um, some blowback uh, against the act of killing, uh, which if anybody doesn't know, uh, act of killing was a documentary that was nominated for best documentary um, this year the Oscars, and um, 
There were two articles in particular that kind of took the movie to task um, for the way, uh, essentially, what it does with the documentary form, and and if it you know is a responsible film, and um, and it's it's interesting, you know, they, it was interesting that these things came out around the time that the Oscars happened um, because uh, the act of killing has been out for quite a long time now. Um, yeah, it started showing up on festivals in 2012, and it got a, a fairly wide release for a documentary last year. Yeah, I mean, it had, you know, uh, Errol Morris and Werner Herzog are the executive producers, and I think that those names, which are kind of, I think, the biggest names in documentary cinema, um, you know, at least, I don't know, on the art house circuit, uh, if if it's got their names behind it, it tends to get a pretty wide uh, release, and yeah, and and you know, and it it took me a while to catch up with it too. You know, I I didn't see it until you know November or some or something along those lines. Um, Actually, yeah, anyway, just just a couple weeks ago. I know you did. We I think, um, but anyway, so these pieces came out about it, um, and. They really annoyed me. <laughs> Did they really annoy you, Sean? <laughs> I only read the one by that appeared in IndieWire by Jill Godmello, and yeah, I I did not care for it pretty much at all. Like it it seemed it seemed really misguided and and misinformed in in that she seemed really offended by the fact that she thought that no critics at all were discussing the kind of ramifications of the act of killing as a documentary on and and what the act of killing is 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 uh, the director Joshua Oppenheimer basically goes to Indonesia and uh, interviews people who uh, took part in this this genocide that took place there and uh, he gets the people who actually perpetrated all of these murders to you know into the idea of making a movie wherein they recreate uh, their, you know, interrogations and killing of uh, of ethnic Chinese people and and supposed communists from uh, was in 1965. Yeah, and the film focuses relentlessly on the the perpetrators of these crimes and and telling them telling their side of the story and the way that they perceive themselves as kind of like gangster heroes, like modeled on on characters from like The Godfather or Scarface or something like that. And and Godmello really takes Oppenheimer to task for not, you know, focusing on the the broader issues around the Indonesian genocide, like, you know, talking to the victims or talking to uh you know, discussing like the broader sociopolitical situation, like the Western, in particular, U.S. involvement in supporting uh, the the dictator who was in charge, who authorized all of these killings, and yeah, that's that's all fine and good, but it's not. But it's not this movie. I mean, yeah, it's not. It's not the movie that Oppenheimer is trying to make. Like, Oppenheimer is not making a movie about the Indonesian genocide. He's making a movie about how people who killed people, who committed horrible crimes, see themselves and, and right. justify themselves and what their self-image is. And it, it's trying to like get you inside 
that perspective to see not only how a human being could could do these things, but how they could you know still live with themselves fifty years after after doing it. And it's it is really interesting. It's a it's a, a fascinating documentary about psychology. It's not a documentary about international politics. Oh no, not at all. I mean, it's a very I mean, it's a very small scale film. I mean, it only follows, it really focuses on one guy. I mean, there's a couple of guys, but really, really intently on this one um, guy. And that's, yeah, that's exactly, (laughs) that's my opinion of the film was, um, sure, a a movie that kind of took a broad view of that is is valuable and it's a valid idea and and stuff. But um, I, you know, a movie should be allowed to do whatever the hell it wants to do. And, uh, it, this movie, um, I think really zeroes in on some interesting things and, 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 um, shows me, shows me, like I learned a lot, um, about human nature from watching this thing. It it seems to me that there is, there's every, every year there is like the, the far left wing backlash against a certain film that, doesn't lecture to its audience. Like it seems to me that that Oppenheimer, the the director of Act of Killing, takes for granted that that we understand that genocide is bad, and then makes a film about the people who perpetrated that genocide. And what God Miller seems to be criticizing it for is for not pointing out that genocide is bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> in in the same way like like the the makers of zero dark 30 kind of assume that we have an opinion on torture and then we're not in favor of it so then they make a film about the people who for whom torture was a justified action and it it asks us to to you know understand them and you know judge them if we will but it's not going to do that for us and it's it's really annoying <laughs> Yeah, well, it's you know it goes you know not to bring this up again, but it goes back to that whole Wolf of Wall Street issue that we were talking about before, where you know watching the act of killing, um, I was you know watching it in revulsion like the whole time, like oh, like you know, I I can't believe some of the things I'm seeing in this movie and and the way these people you know go about their lives. I mean, it's it's you know it's shocking. Um, and it's I, a lot of the shocking aspects of it is because the movie doesn't hold your hand. It just it it's like it just lays it out there, and uh, you know if if you can't come to your own conclusion about that stuff, I don't think that I don't think it's the movie's failing. I don't think it's the movie's fault for that. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think it's a really condescending criticism. Yeah, like. Uh, you know, people uh, people will be fooled into thinking that Anwar Congo is a hero. Right, right. I mean, not for one second in that movie did I did I ever think that about this guy. You know what I mean? Um, now, now yeah. that that being said, I, I think I think there is a a kind of a valid criticism of the film there in that we we tend to not focus on on systemic issues when we talk about about politics like everything is is so relentlessly personal and confessional it seems in our culture that there's not really kind of a, a broad 
analysis of what's going on. Like, yes, the act of killing is not a, you know, a systemic history of Indonesian genocide and, and, you know, mid 20th century geopolitics. And it's not trying to be that. But on the other hand, we have a lot of confessional stories. We have a lot of individual anecdotal stories. But what we don't have are, are big picture stories. And that seems to, to be something that's absent in the documentary world. And I, I, I do think that that is a problem. Now, I, I wouldn't criticize any individual film for that. But as, you know, like a, a film going community, I, w- I would like to see more movies that do address bigger issues with a bigger scope. Well, yeah, no, I, d- I don't disagree with that. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, it's a larger issue than just documentaries or, or even filmmaking, you know, like... Um, That's true. It, like, it's, it's, it's pervasive in, in talk show culture. Yeah, or you see it, you know, newspapers have gravitated more towards, you know, the personal interest story and, and trying to shape an issue around somebody like that. And I remember when that kind of first started to really... Um, take a hold maybe 15 years ago. I remember noticing a shift when I, when I still read an actual newspaper, <laughs> but I remember starting to read more and more of these that took that kind of tone where it was more of a narrative trying to like um, tell you a story as a, instead of the facts or, or something like that. And, you know, when that happened, I, I kind of took notice and was like, Hmm, this is an interesting development that I'm not quite sure I like, you know, um, but I feel like you're right. I, I, there's a tendency now to, to, to do that. And um, we shouldn't lose. I think both sides are completely valid. I think they have their, their strengths to them. Um, but yeah, it seems like we're losing that other um, means of, of telling a, telling a story or, um, or focusing on, on, an event or, or something like that. Yeah, and, and this is the point where I, I recommend uh, The Missing Picture. which Again. Is, uh, again, <laughs> which is uh, was my second favorite movie of 2013. It was nominated for the Best Foreign Film Oscar, but pointedly not Best Documentary. Uh, and it, it is a film that has you know a very wrenching personal story as the, the director, Rithi Pan, recounts his, his experiences growing up in... Uh, in a Khmer Rouge concentration camp in Cambodia in the 1970s. And while at the same time he's telling the story of, of him and his family and his friends and, and the people in the camp, he's also discussing you know, the, the larger ideology of the Khmer Rouge and how something like that could happen as he's trying to, to make sense of these experiences that happened to him. And in addition to that, He's, he's, you know, kind of interrogating the very nature of documentaries of these crimes as there, there is no filmic record of the Khmer Rouge because they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't allow it. The only films we have of them are, are propaganda films. So, so it's a film that, that, unlike The Act of Killing, which is focusing on like one level of the story, and it's a, a fascinating level of the story, and it's a very interesting documentary, uh, The Missing Picture, I think, is a great film because it's doing that in addition to all of these other really, really interesting things in really creative ways. Well, I look forward to checking it out. I mean, I think it opens in Seattle on the 19th of this month. So um, it's definitely high up on my list of, of films to get to. And uh, Yeah, I, that- think, I, I think it's slowly rolling out across the country. It's getting kind of like the, the limited art house type release. So if it comes to your city, definitely do not miss it. Yeah, sounds like a winner to me. 
So let's talk about the other uh, the other big uh, film critic thing to do of of the last couple of weeks, which was uh, <laughs> this essay that the the esteemed critic uh, Kent Jones wrote in film crit- in uh, film comment oh. magazine that is available online uh, about the about the auteur theory and kind of the the state of contemporary auteurism, although. It seems to me that uh, uh, as Film Comment advertised the article on on Twitter, it was you know Kent Jones on contemporary auteurism, and then you know you read the article and he mentions like zero critics that are actually still alive. No, it's it's yeah, I didn't know that that was the way it was sold because um, it <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. Uh, yeah, because I think it stops at like 1960. <laughs> well, they, uh, he, he, start, he starts with Manny Farber, who's been dead for several years and hasn't been a film critic, hadn't been a film critic, I think, for like 30 years before he died. Uh, and uh, at least not like a, a, a constantly working film critic. Right. Uh, it talks a little bit about uh, Andrew Saris, obviously. It talks about Andre Bazin. And then it goes into detail on uh, uh, a part of an essay that... Uh, uh, the critic uh, Robin Wood wrote in the 1970s about a Nicholas Ray film from the 1950s, and <laughs> right. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of film criticism that's happened in the the 40 years since that Robin Wood essay that that Jones doesn't really touch on. But the the issues that he brings up are are still nonetheless present in contemporary autorism. Like it, there hasn't really been a, a an auteur theorist that has followed in Andrew Saris's footsteps. Like it hasn't really gone forward. It's just kind of infected all of criticism to where it just is a default stance nowadays. And so what, what Jones is criticizing is, is a couple kind of esoteric tendencies in the theory. And I don't know if we really want to get into that because you know, we don't want to lose listeners. (laughs) Yeah. Well you can, you can descend too far down that 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 rabbit hole so i i don't know if we can kind of talk about it in in general terms like it, it seems to me like that his main focus is that there's a, a tendency in criticism to uh and andrew Saris pointed this out uh to to see the auteur as responsible for everything regardless of the facts of the actual production and Saris would say that 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 is okay. It's kind of a, a useful myth to use in film criticism. Uh, that the, the auteur theory is not a theory of film history. Like it's not a theory about how movies got made. Uh, the auteur theory is a theory of film criticism. It's it's a method that you use in order to come to conclusions about whether films are good or bad, or whether films are better than other films, and whether directors are better than other directors. And Jones seems to think that criticism has gone a little too far towards the the useful myth side to where it's actually kind of taking the myth seriously and it's losing the historical focus that should also be a part of film criticism. At least that's what I got out of it. What what No, that's that, that that's well <laughs> 
considering <laughs> considering I, that you just read it an hour ago <laughs> cons yeah considering that you sent it to me like uh, a week ago and then you asked me right before we recorded did i read that and i said oh uh, uh give me a minute and i i raced through it no that's a, that's definitely what it what it's um getting after at least that's that's my take on it um and trying to yeah i mean i th i think it's an interesting idea and I, I think it's um it's a valid point to bring up um because you know like going back to manny farber um what i really like about manny farber's stuff and, and he talks about this at the beginning of the article is that um F farber had a way of writing i mean obviously he was kind of a singular writer anyway but the way that he would approach a subject was was a lot different than anybody else that does it nowadays because of the nature of um, focus, I guess, on, on an auteur is, is different. And, and Farber would kind of take this circuitous route um, where he would... It, it's interesting reading Farber because he would, at least for me, he'll write about a movie that usually you you read just like heaps of praise on and he'll like nitpick it in really odd ways and then but then you get to the end of what he's writing about and he ultimately likes something <laughs> but he sees it from such a i think a unique perspective that has kind of been lost now where it's it it, it seems like that nowadays there's more of um there's more of a focus on evaluation yeah, Whereas more Far Farber's yeah. criticism is more about what what the film makes him think about, and right. it's it's riffing on on ideas that are are related, maybe related to the film that he's watching, but it may just be you know things that that it has inspired him to to consider about about film or about the world in general. And, and and most of the film criticism we get now is is evaluative, like this movie works. I give it a B minus. Right. And, and, and I do, you know, I'm responsible, you know, I mean, I guilty of that and, and it shouldn't even be guilt. I mean, I think that's totally valid. And I think that like, as everybody now is kind of a film critic, um, that's, you know, I, I think like the idea of autism being something that is now just taken for granted or is just assimilated into the, you know, conversation where everybody, most everybody, um, immediately you know that there's not even a question when they're talking about a film or whatever um whereas that you know the concept 50 years ago was was kind of novel or whatever um i think that's a, you know a good thing and but i you i think there's a glut of criticism now that is kind of all the same and you know what this article kind of argues for or at least um part of it argues for is yeah it would be interesting to to push the form forward a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's, there's not, um, I, I feel like there, there are ways to approach and I'm not smart enough to do it myself. So somebody else has to do the work for me, but you know, like to kind of break the mold that a lot of us are getting into nowadays where, like you said, where it's, it's more valuative and, and assigning grades and stuff. Um, you know, someone like Manny Farber um, can can uh, invigorate you in a way that 
you know, somebody, I'm not going to, I'm not going to start naming names of people that can't, but I mean, I really respect the stuff that people are doing now, but, um, I feel, I feel like there is a little bit of a, you know, homogeny to what's going on now. And, um, it'd be interesting to read somebody that's kind of looking at things from a completely different perspective. Um, I guess that would be Armand White or something. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I think, uh, I think you, Need look no farther than than the vulgar tourist critics, who uh, you know have have been kind of labeled at, as such, but they they look at at movies differently, and it's you know the the unique thing that they you know to talk about them as a a monolithic whole, which they are not. Uh, they tend to focus more on the visual nature of the film than more traditional kind of plot, dialogue, acting uh, things, which are which are easier. I think for for Americans who are who are kind of educated from a very early age to to read uh, stories and dialogues as as good or bad, and we're really good at interpreting narrative, but not so much at interpreting images. Uh, and and that kind of imagistic focus of the the vulgar tourist critics is is a new kind of criticism. It's breaking away from the simple kind of evaluative. Uh, kinds of criticism. Now, I, I tend to find some of their, their stuff uh, inexplicable. Uh, a lot of their, their criticism is on, on Tumblr, and it basically consists of like a, a, a screenshot that they thought was neat, apparently. Right. And so you go to, you know, they have a page. There's one from like uh, John McTiernan's Die Hard uh, with a Vengeance. That's like a, a set of three shots, and this is all the the post consists of. It's just three screenshots, and it's one shot, and then it's a rack uh, a rack focus within that shot, and then it's a third shot where it's a rack focus back, and that's the extent of the criticism. And I I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what that means. Uh, I wish it was you know a a little more developed, but but still you know they have. That on focusing on on directors, straight to video people, Paul W. S. Anderson, that are not getting any kind of critical attention at all. That that is valuable, and that is something that auteurists have always done. And you know, who, who knows where where these guys will go in the future? They're all very young, so right. Well, no, that's valid, and but you, I agree with you in terms of, and I haven't really dipped my toes into that water, so I guess I'm guilty of not really nurturing what I'm requesting, but. Um, but yeah, like, I—that's the thing that I'm afraid of. And here comes the old man. <laughs> but like, I've noticed certain people who have kind of moved from like writing in-depth pieces um, that you know I think a lot of work was put into it, put into it and stuff. To where nowadays it's so easy to just have a Tumblr or 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 you know just like quote a line from the movie in your Twitter feed or something like that as, as that's your, your way of, you know, I don't know, giving an opinion on a, on, on a thing. And, you know, sure. You can't write, you know, 2000 words about every movie you see or whatever, but I, but I've noticed that a progression of, of certain people and I won't name names where they, um, they've kind of moved to just like, okay, I'm just going to post a screenshot because <laughs> I'm lazy. Or I mean, to me, it seems like a little bit like laziness. And I would like well, somebody... It's, it's, it's the fact that, that film criticism is not a, a profession for 99% of, of film critics. 
Oh no, I, it's, it's, I understand. It's, it's a hobby. It's it's not like the 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 heydays of of the the Paulettes versus the Sarasites, where everybody's got a job at a newspaper and all they have to do is film criticism. No, no, I understand. But that being said, um, people are watching so many movies nowadays that they're you know there's time to do that. You know what I mean? Like I feel like. Um, yeah, and and I I think I think I I see what you mean. Uh, I I see this in myself. I tend to watch more movies than I write about, and and part of the problem is is there are so many more movies available now than there used to be, with uh you know with with DVD and with Netflix and streaming and the internet, and so much easier to get movies than it was. 30 years ago when the only movies you could see were the ones that, that came to a theater in your town. So, yeah. And then you could, and then you would really dwell, like you'd really think about it afterwards and like, you'd have a, you know, conversation with the person you saw it with. And then it would, you know, yeah, it, exactly. I, that's a good point. I mean, it's, it's so easy to just, um, you know, like last night I watched, uh, three musketeers, and as soon as that was over, I watched my Western, you know, <laughs> like it was just like a, a seamless transition into my next thing, um, which I think is a little, you know, I, I, I don't know. I would like to maybe spend a little bit more time with certain things and uh, give them more of a, you know, fair shot than I, you know, than, than just making it... Um, I know. I don't know. Another disposable two hours or something in my useless life. Yeah. See, I'm I, <laughs> I, I'm I'm an addict. I just I just want to keep watching movies, and the more movies I watch, the more movies I realize there are that I need to watch that I I, I have to see, and it just it never stops. There's always something else that I could watch. Like there are. I have I have instant Netflix. I have Hulu. I have. Amazon streaming. I have Scarecrow Video, the video, big, the greatest video store in the world that I go to every week. There are you know great movies playing in movie theaters. There are so many movies that I want to watch that I I don't want to take the time to write a like a blog post about something. Well, when I could just watch more movies. Well, no, and that's totally fine. Um, and and hey. You know, I I haven't updated my blog in forever in a day, but I just want basically I want other people to do the work for me. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah, I mean, I'm not saying you know I th- actually think we need fewer critics. Um, you know, because there's just there's just everybody nowadays does it. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's something to say for just like just watching a movie and then going and and <laughs> watching another movie, like you know, um. No problem with that, you know. Uh, it's hard. There should be more hours in the day because you know, honestly, the the thing that that I find is most conducive to like helping me actually write anything is is reading, and I never have any time for reading because I'm always watching movies. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. I understand. Except except uh, for this week where I discovered that I can play Civilization on my telephone, and so I haven't done hardly anything at else for the last week. Well, you know, it's going to be hard is, you know, baseball season starts, uh, in just a couple of weeks. And, um, I've, I've been in a huge movie watching binge, um, you know, and it's going to be really hard to juggle. Like something's got, something's got to give, you know, either I'm going to just ignore baseball again, like I did last year or, 
Um, well, well, fortunately, after you know the first week or so of the baseball season, you'll you'll realize how terrible the Mariners are and and won't need to watch it for the rest of the year. Well, you know, I'm a Bay Area boy, so there's there's a, all the, always other baseball to watch. <laughs> yeah, but you, Although, you don't get the Giants on TV here, so or the I A's. do actually. Really? I I well, I get MLB. Oh, you I, steal, you don't have a television. You you steal it on the or you watch it on the internet. I, well, I don't steal it. Right. I pay MLB right. TV. And I, I can stream any uh, Giants game, any out-of-market baseball game. So wow. it's great. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk about baseball next week, so we'll ignore that uh, for now. Um, let's talk about our Cinema Central this week. Which, uh, in, in keeping with the, the Three Musketeers and uh, Jason and the Argonauts, uh, it's our Cinema Central swashbuckler. Uh, do you know how to buckle a swash? I don't. I don't know how to uh, swab a poop deck either. Is that what you call it? Swab, swab or swap? Swab. Swab. Swab, swab the poop deck. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to do either of those things. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't stop me from picking my favorite of the uh, swashbuckle genre. Um, and immediately coming to mind when you think of swashbucklers, you think of Errol Flynn, or at least I do. I don't know what your brain does, you weirdo. Um, you know, and and it's tempting to go with something like uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood or Captain Blood, uh, but you know, films I really really like. But uh, I thought about it today, and to me, even though there's more buckles being swashed in those films, I think for me the quintessential uh, swashbuckling movie has got to be The Princess Bride mm-hmm. because it's got the gr- like. Not only does it have, uh, you know, Inigo Montoya, um, you know, swearing revenge the whole movie and finally getting his his day in the sun, but you've got, you know, um, the Dread Pirate Roberts. You've got it's it's such a great. I mean, there's so much more to that movie than just like sword fights and stuff. And there actually aren't that many sword fights in the film, but um, the sword fights are really good. They're so good, and they're the movie's like a riff on the whole swashbuckle genre anyway and i think it's just amazing and uh i yeah the princess bride you know it's 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 a movie that gets talked about a lot but at the same time going back to what you're saying about comedies um you know for like the 80s comedies or whatever that you think don't translate well i've noticed like i i just assume everybody's seen the princess bride because everybody's seen the princess bride but you know younger generations aren't really some people I talk to don't even know what I'm talking about. And, and I cannot believe that. <laughs> like, um, so I hope that if, and if someone out there is listening to this and they've never heard or watched the princess bride, that they will rectify that, uh, immediately because life gets so much better after you've seen the princess bride. You know, I, uh, uh, it came out, I was 11 years old in 1987 and it came out and my mom and my sister wanted to go see it. And and me exactly like the the Fred Savage character <laughs> in the movie did not want to go see it because it was called The Princess Bride, right? And like it, it sounds like a girl movie, and I wasn't going to go watch it. So I went. I I think I watched like The Last Starfighter instead, or something like that. And then six months later, it came out on video, and they rented it, and they watched it while I was like doing something else, uh-huh. and I kind of like half watched it and thought it was hilarious and that night after they went to sleep i watched it again on videotape and then i watched it a third time yeah 
Uh, and it has been one of my favorite movies ever since. The book it's is incredible. the book is really good too. I don't know if you book is really it. really good too. Yeah, there's stuff in the book that's not in the movie, and I think because, for budget reasons or whatever, you know, like the end where they're in the uh, like the whirlpool and stuff. Um, yeah, and there's there's like the whole introduction where he's like meeting Robert Redford or something. And yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. It's a really great book. So, what is your pick for the uh, Cinema Central swashbuckler film? Well, I too thought of Errol Flynn, and I have no compunction about picking the adventures, <laughs> the adventures of Robin Hood, which is just one of the great movies of all time. It is really good. It uh, is really good. Uh, directed by Michael Curtiz, uh, Errol Flynn, Basil Rathbone, Claude Rains, Olivia de Havilland. It it is, you know, it is it is one of those uh, perfect Hollywood entertainment films that that you know. You you can't you can't say anything bad about it. I won't I won't I won't hear it. <laughs> I don't worry. I won't. What do you think of uh, some of the other like the like I said Captain Blood and uh, the Seahawk and stuff? What do you think of, of those films? That's okay. I've actually seen the the silent version of the Seahawk, which was was much darker, as I recall, than than the Errol Flynn version. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like I like Flynn. I like his swashbucklers. I like his war movies too. He he has some some odd ones. There's one where he. Uh, He's like he plays like a, a southern soldier who's uh, in, it's like a civil war or a pre-civil war movie where he's like arguing with John Brown and saying that you know the South aren't so bad just you know let them get rid of slavery on their own terms don't be such a dick about it that that'll work out just fine I'm sure yeah, and then there <laughs> and then there's the one he did with uh, Raoul Walsh where he plays uh, Custer and it's a, a completely sanitized totally ahistorical version of of custer he's like the opposite of the real custer right where his like uh his uh uh suicidal attack against the sioux is like this uh kind of valiant heroic sacrifice that he makes knowing that he's going to lose you know for the good of the country or something which is 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 absurd and uh but still a really cool movie. <laughs> that, that sounds actually pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, like if you ignore the fact that it's it's absolutely false, it's, right. it's really good. Yeah, I have no problem with that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I like, for example, with like the Three Musketeers, and this is this is kind of different, but like the stuff that that they added to the to Paul W. S. Anderson's film, um, like I like I said, I love the uh, the book. But the, but there's no real fidelity to it. Like you can do whatever you want. That's fine. You know. Um, you know. I didn't yeah, think it worked like, necessarily. Um, just because I did. I just didn't think it was well done. But sure, you can add in this whole strange, you know, airship thing that has nothing to do with the original story. But whatever. Yeah, it's 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 weird how how the film is kind of faithful and unfaithful at the same time to the original novel. Like it it adds. Uh, a backstory between Athos and uh, and Miljovic's character, uh, Milady, yep. that actually is in the book, but you like you find out much later, and it's a much pre uh, earlier in time backstory, and then uh, the the two of them never actually meet. If I'm remembering the the books right, I I read all of them, but it was a long time ago. Right. Uh, like uh Milady ends up being like his ex-wife and he thought he had killed her and then he kills her again. Yeah. Uh, uh yeah, and the whole, you know, getting the jewels back 
Um, right, which is which is a plot element of the Three Musketeers, and it's also in the Lester film. But in in the book, I think Buckingham actually is sleeping with the Queen. Well, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's hazy. I couldn't, I couldn't go there. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't say for sure. But, um, but anyway, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm down to see Errol Flynn play Custer and be, you know, <laughs> Errol be, Flynn be, be doing heroic. it. Yeah. yeah, because that's what he does. So, um, cool. Well, uh, shall we hear a clip from our swashbuckle type film, Jason and the Argonauts? Yes, another uh, very historically accurate film. <laughs> Absolutely. Columbia Pictures presents Jason and the Argonauts, the mightiest band of warriors the world has ever known. Turn back, Jason! We're trapped! Sailing to the ends of the earth, battling against an incredible number of obstacles. Where will you find this miracle? I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world. With a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. In search of the fabulous magic golden fleece, Jason and the Argonauts, caught in the clutches of the towering bronze giant Talos, battered by treacherous falling rocks, taming vulturous harpies, facing the dreaded seven-headed Hydra, battling the merciless army of skeletons. Jason and the Argonauts, the classic story of Jason. A man who challenged the gods. Medea, a temple dancer who betrayed a kingdom for love. The Argonauts, the mightiest band of warriors the world has ever known. Jason and the Argonauts, a classic adventure story. Brought to the screen through the incredible special effects magic of Dinorama. Jason and the Argonauts, the search that became a legend. All right, so if if you are my age, you probably saw Clash of the Titans at a very young age. It it came out in 1981, I believe, 82. Uh, I saw it in theater. My mom was a huge Ray Harryhausen fan. She she dragged is me to it. One, is that the one with the Medusa? Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. the uh, Harry Hamlin as as Perseus. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that movie freaked me out as a kid. Yeah, I, I loved it. I mean, he's got like a mechanical owl, and uh, he fights the uh, the big sea dragon at the end to save right. Cassiopeia, or Cassiopeia's the queen. I don't yeah. remember. Anyway, uh, so so Ray Harryhausen movies are are like movies of of my youth. They're these they would play on Saturday afternoons, like after Star Trek, and we would always watch them. And Jason and the Argonauts is is one of those movies. So. So in watching it, it's it's hard for me to get any kind of critical distance from it because it's it's so it's so kind of basic to my to my growing up and understanding what films are and how they work and and what stories are. So I can't say anything really bad about Jason and the Argonauts <laughs> because I I love it so much. But you know, in in trying to get some kind of critical distance from it and and. What I want to do is 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 try and look at it through the same lens that we look at something like the Three Musketeers, the the movie we talked about in the first part. And I think if Jason and the Argonauts came out now, it would get pretty much the same reviews that the Paul W. S. Anderson film gets because its faults are pretty much the same. It's it's poorly acted. The dialogue is is functional at best. 
There's a, you know, it's on a slightly higher level than Anderson's film, but, but not much. And it's, it's, you know, wildly disregards the whole Jason and the Argonauts tradition in favor of a very basic and very simple quest plotline that, that's episodic. There's very little characterization of anyone. And it's mostly about the cool special effects. Yep. I agree completely. I, I, um, I, I think these movies are, are perfectly paired with one another. Um, I, I give the edge to Jason, the Argonauts solely for the Harry house and stuff, because you're right. Uh, I think the acting is atrocious. Um, uh, although the dialogue, there's one, there's one line, um, <laughs> there's one line near the end where, um, uh, Medea says to Jason, uh, we have a flower. Uh, wait, let me get this right. We have a flower in Colchis, uh, which heals and soothes. Tomorrow I'll show you, which I'm pretty sure is a vagina, but <laughs> I could be wrong. Um, so I really like that line. Um, but yeah, it's, it, these movies are very, very similar in terms of uh, their strengths and weaknesses. Um, but there's nothing in The Three Musketeers that is as awesome as those skeletons coming out of the ground, um, which is just the most badass thing ever. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just love that part. Um, but you're right. The, the, it's interesting that this is, is such a you know beloved film um, when, in, in fact, it has a lot of problems. <laughs> All right, so I, I guess uh, I guess we should like outline the plot. It's uh, should we? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's it's in in ancient Greece, and uh, Jason is the son of the the ruler of Thessaly, who escapes as his uh, his family is murdered, as the the city is is conquered by uh, uh, Pileus, Pileus, Pileus. Uh, and 20 years later, he's grown up and he's, just, he's come to, to retake his land. And he's going to do that by inspiring the people, by uh, uh, doing this uh, tremendous feat, which is the thing that, that uh, characters did all the time in ancient Greek stories. They would, they would accomplish a task and that would give, bring them you know, fame and renown. And his task is to go to uh, this very distant land of, of Colchis, which is uh, it's actually on the... Uh, the eastern edge of the Black Sea, kind of where where Georgia is now. Uh, he's going to go there to to bring back this this golden fleece, which is the the skin of a ram that is gold. And the the original myth is kind of uh, is generally considered to be an allegory for uh, somebody who opened up like a trade route between Greece and Georgia. Like the golden fleece is symbol of like the money that came back in the the naval commerce. But you know that's not really explored at all in the film. What the film is is uh, is episodic. There's uh, basically just three Harryhausen monsters that Jason and his men have to get past. First, there's a, a giant bronze statue called uh, Talos. Talos? Talos, I think, yeah. Called Talos, that uh, they incur the wrath of by, by Hercules, uh, of all people, acting incredibly stupid. <laughs> it's, one of, it's one of those things where, where the characters say, now you can do anything you want, but don't do this. And then, of course, one of them does exactly that. 
Yeah. And it's one of my least favorite things in, in adventure or like fantasy storytelling. Uh, there's the, there's a similar, uh, uh, sequence in, in Pan's Labyrinth where, uh, the Guillermo del Toro film where the girl is told that you can do anything you want, but don't eat anything in this room. And so of course the first thing she does is eat something. And then this horrible monster attacks her. Right. And she's like, well, of course the horrible monster attacked you. You did the one thing that we told you not to. Yes. Idiot. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> the, the second task is to like, uh, uh, sail their boat through these, uh, rocks that like have an avalanche and you do, they do it by, by summoning like a giant merman from the ocean, which is really kind of cool. Yeah. That uh, seems really odd. <laughs> And then, and then the third one is uh, uh, he steals the fleece and is chased by uh, by the Colchians who uh, send an army of skeletons after him after he's defeated a, a Hydra, which actually isn't from the Jason and the Argonaut story at all. That's one of like Hercules' things was killing the Hydra. And in the actual Jason and the Argonaut story, he didn't steal the fleece. The uh, the ruler of Colchis said that you could have it if you can accomplish these three tasks. It's again like the the Greek myth task setting. If you do this thing, then you get that. But that's neither here nor there. So Todd Armstrong plays Jason, and he's about as bland as can be. Whew. Yeah, he's no good. Uh, his his yeah he 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 speaks in that voice that I am telling you this this is you know and it's just oh. It's 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 tough. It's tough. <laughs> there there are there are a couple interesting interactions between uh, Zeus and, and Hera, the uh, the god and, and goddess that are kind of watching over this journey and commenting on it as as it happens. And that's where like the film is most kind of philosophically interesting. Is that that Zeus is is kind of ambivalent towards Jason, like he's not actively opposed to him. But he's he's uh, he's not really supportive of him either. Like Hera is his big backer, and one of the the odd thing about Jason is that he's very defiant towards the gods. Like he doesn't really submit to them. He doesn't believe that that they have the right to control their lives. He's going to do what he thinks is best, and that Zeus is very ambivalent about that. Like he understands that that eventually people aren't going to need the gods, as you know Jason understands as well. And when that happens, Zeus isn't going to have any more power. But he's not, he's still kind of resigned to that. He's not actively going to stop Jason from, you know, exercising his free will. Yeah, here's my problem with the movie. And it, it, kind, of, it kind of falls into this. Like, you have the problem with the don't do this, oh wait, I did this, oh bad things happen. Um, but problem with this film is it's baked into the story there's you, there's nothing you can really do about it to to save it but um this movie's all about fate and uh you know uh it opens with you know um Pelias kind of you know ascending the throne after killing Jason's family and stuff but then being told in 20 years Jason's going to come back and you're going to he's going to kill you and you're going to lose there's nothing you can do about it um so when things are faded like that, there's not really any dramatic tension. Um, and that's compounded by the fact that since Hera is so into Jason and, and willing to help him out, um, that he gets like basically, she's like his game genie. Like he's got like five get out of jail free cards with her. Um, and so the problem with this movie is every time 
things go awry and and like you know the giant statue comes to to attack um he can just call on the gods to save him and there's no real sense of stakes because you just know that he's going to get out of it because he he has this uh benevolent you know benefactor and I, that's my problem with this movie is i can't get into the uh tension because you know it's not there <laughs> well I, I mean you, you don't expect that jason is going to get killed in in the same way that you don't expect like robin hood is going to to lose his sword fight with uh you know, no, I know, but, of Nottingham or, but it's or interesting to see how like Robin Hood will get himself out of a jam. But with this movie, it's like, oh, after like the second time he does it, oh, you know, he's gonna he's gonna drown or whatever. He's gonna call in Hera to help him out, and she will, you know, it's it. I have the same problem with uh, Disney's Pinocchio, where the uh, the blue fairy just you know saves Pinocchio a bunch of times and. You know, she even tells him at one point, "This is the last time I can help you," and then she helps him again or whatever. Um, that's a big pet peeve of mine. Yeah, it's the the literal Deus Ex Machina. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, but anywho. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of it's kind of interesting to think about those things as as allegories. Like, it's if you take Zeus and Hera as not literal god figures that are actively playing a role in the story but personifications of of forces and of ideas like if there was an actual jason and if he was actually fighting a giant bronze statue uh he may have found out the way to defeat it and then credited it to this god figure that they all that they all worshiped but really there are no greek gods like they're not real but still, these guys did. How dare you? They did amazing. <laughs> they did amazing things. It's like, like the there's there was no like actual golden fleece, but there was most likely uh, a, a very long and dangerous journey across the Black Sea to this distant land to open a trade route between between Thessaly and and modern day Georgia. Well, yeah, but sure, but but in the context of watching the movie, um, you have like. You can think of the what the allegory was for them getting through the passage, uh, you know, the rocky uh, canal. But when you're watching it, it's oh, here's a giant merman. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, and that's actually you know, it's it's a simplification. That's, that's part of the the film simplifying the the myth as it stands. And there there are various different versions of the the story of Jason and the Argonauts, but. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like Athena, like, uh, gives them like a puff of wind and they sail quickly through the rocks, which is more of like a human agency kind of thing. And it like, it requires like, you know, seamanship and, you know, whether you credit, you know, Athena for blowing them through or just their, you know, their, their skilled navigation and catching the wind and racing through and that, and that daring to get through this narrow passage, you know, it's, it's a matter of perspective. So you know that that's that's how I pro- uh, kind of approach Greek myths and and stuff like Homer or something like it's if you if you think of of the gods not so much as like actual people but as personifications of forces and drives that are that are existent in human nature. Sure, I can see that, and you know, I I, I actually do. I think the best. Um, 
are the most interesting scenes in this, uh, you know, would be accepting the Harryhausen stuff is the stuff between the gods talking and having, like you said, philosophical discussions and, and, um, seeing the, the interplay between the two of them and their perspectives. I, I think that's the most, um, at least stim, you know, stimulating, uh, moments of the film. Definitely. Yeah. And there's also, there's like nods to, to other related myths that, that the film doesn't dramatize, but that you could see being like spinoffs. Like, uh, early, early in the story after Hercules has had his, his big screw up, he's, he's sent off and, and Hera's like, Zeus has other plans for him. And we know, you know, if you're familiar with Greek mythology, you know, uh, that Hercules will go on to uh, once again be set to a variety of tasks and do all of these heroic things. And at, at the end of the film, when when Jason goes off with the uh, the high priestess of uh, Hecate, the uh, the goddess of magic, uh, that their that their uh, marriage is not going to end well because we're familiar with the the story of Medea from uh, from I think Sophocles. And there's various versions of that. I, uh, so it, it lends a, a kind of poignance to the ending. Like, it's not as happy quite as it seems. It's not like the cliffhanger ending that we saw in, in Three Musketeers. But you know that there's more to the story and that this is kind of the high point of Jason's life. And then, you know, his wife is going to try and kill him and then kill her children. Right. Spoiler. <laughs> I was just disappointed. I I thought it was going to be Tyler Perry, um, but turns out there's a different Medea. So I was pretty bummed about that. And I actually, I actually think that that Nancy Kovac, who plays Medea, kind of gives her that edge, where you're not entirely sure that she's totally sane because she she seems a little nuts. She's kind of nutty, but I think a lot of people in this movie are nutty, um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, Oh, we for we I didn't mention the harpies. We we missed that. Right, uh, I was just task. about to get to. Uh, yeah. yeah, Patrick Troughton, the second Doctor, uh, appears here um, a few years before he actually took on the role of, of the Doctor in Doctor Who um, as a blind man um, who is being attacked by the, these harpies, and uh, he he has information. He's the only one with information of of um, for Jason of how to get to. Um, where he needs to be, and so Jason has to think of some plan to get the harpies off his back. And uh, you know, I was a little disappointed. I, I, I don't know. It maybe it was because I was trying to like write Doctor Who fan fiction in my head, where Patrick Troughton was actually the Doctor in that scene, <laughs> um, but it wasn't really working in terms of the story. It wouldn't really jive with it, but. Uh, what I but what I like okay let's just get down to it let's get down to it the stop motion animation here's why I like it in this movie this, here's why it's so good is that it's thing it to me it's like Harryhausen um he challenged himself because each character that he brings to life on the screen is a different kind of creature and and what's so fascinating is they all move differently you know like the the hydra moves like a reptile you know it has this slithery nature to it whereas the skeletons move you know in a more jangly sort of way and then the giant statue is a very lumbering thing 
And um, that is an impressive feat to, you know, he's using the same tools for each one, but he's, he's kind of um, embodying something different in each of them. And uh, it's, it's a really amazing, amazing job. I mean, I don't know. What's your favorite, is, what's your favorite stop motion segment in this film? Uh, well, I think I think uh, uh, Talos and and the skeletons are are much better than the harpies. Yeah, the the harpies are pretty impressive, though. I must say, I yeah. like the the way they do like the wing work and stuff. I think it's it's pretty good. It, it's, um, it's okay. Like uh, of of the effects, the the harpies look the fakest to me. Like they they look most like they're uh, like they're blue screened in. Like it's a process shot. Like it, it doesn't seem as cohesive. Right. As the uh, the sword fight, the the skeletons, the the fight with the skeletons is pretty much seamless. Like I I don't know how he did it. <laughs> I don't know either. But it it looks like they're fighting skeletons, and and it 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 might be the best integration of, of stop motion animation into live action that I that I've ever seen. Like it, it's, it's great. It's, it's that good. Like. Th- CGI doesn't look that realistic to me. No, I agree. I mean, and and the, it's the little things that they add where um, you know one of the Argonauts will have his uh, shield in one hand or whatever, and the skeleton will like swat at it, and then the you'll see the the shield go flying, and and yeah, it's it's adding these interactions between the two um, elements. Uh, like what you know, a skeleton will. Uh, slice at the uh the leg of an argonaut but the argonaut will jump over it and it yeah it just looks like they're in the exact same place it's 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 really really well done the skeleton coming out of the ground is for me that's the oh snap moment where it's just like things are about to get real and it's just absolutely amazing and uh this is such an iconic scene that Sam Raimi uh famously paid homage to it. And I, this is an example of, of doing something like we were talking about Paul Tom, or Paul, <laughs> Paul W.S. Anderson earlier, using things from other movies and, and riffing on them or whatever. Um, the use of the skeletons, stop motion skeletons in Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness, they're not on par with Jason and the Argonauts, but they, for me, those work in a, in a way that the stuff in uh, The Three Musketeers does not. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think the the CGI in the Three Musketeers is really good, and and I think it's he, Anderson uses it uses it really well and and really creatively. Like you were talking about, like with the uh, the 3D maps and oh, that stuff's great. Like Don't get the, me wrong on that. The, that kind of effect that he has, like this movie was, was shot for 3D and was shown theatrically in 3D, and obviously we're watching it on on our regular non 3D televisions, so we're not really kind of getting that that full effect. But there's like a, a a shot early in the film where where he's kind of panning along the map, and you see like the name uh, uh, France or Paris or something uh, in raised letters above the map, and the camera kind of flows right through them, and and that's an effect that that Peter Greenaway did just uh, last year in this uh, 3D short that he made that was part of a three by 3D compendium of shorts along with uh, Jean Luc Godard and also the the worst movie ever made. Um, <laughs> So I mean, it's it's uh, you know Anderson kind of predating a, a 
legit art house auteur like like Peter Greenaway with the exact same effect shows that you know he kind of knows what he's doing. Well, but see, in, in some aspects of the filmmaking. Yeah, no, and I was actually speaking of like stop motion or something. Like I was thinking about seeing that early scene um, where there it's all digital during that that map scene, mm-hmm. um, kind of giving you the background of of where France is at at this time um, and place. And I was I, I thought it'd be interesting to see an Anderson film that's all that. You know, get rid of the people entirely and just do something like that. Because to me, that's the most visually striking uh, moment in the film. Like later when it gets to the kind of more generic CGI, like the blimp, uh, the, you know, the, the two Zeppelins flying through the air and stuff or, um, you know, stuff like that. Or the, the you know, the flood of water. Um, it's It's, I don't know, kind of bland to me at least. Um, although well, I must I, say... I think, th- uh... I think I think the blimp fight is okay. Uh, I will say that the the flood of water coming up out of the basement is uh, a reference to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and also uh, the uh, one of one of my favorite uh, action scenes in the film takes place when when uh, Mila Jovovich is on like the the roof of the the palace. I, I I think it's the Louvre. It might be Versailles. I don't I don't know which palace it is, but she's up there on this roof and she's going to break into the queen's chamber. And we see on the parade ground below uh, guards marching, and they're marching a- away from the palace and then towards the palace. And so she's got to to time her uh, attack on the guards and then her infiltration of the queen's room to when the guards are marching away from the palace so that they don't see her. And so Anderson sets this up in, in like one master shot, and then we hear the sounds of the guards marching and of them turning. And, you know, he trusts us to integrate that, that oral information with what Jovovich is doing in, you know, quickly dispensing with the guards and then pausing and hiding and then waiting for the guards to go away and, and then attacking the room. So to put together something like that that has almost no CGI, I mean, I think it's a process shot most likely. Like the, the master shot, there's probably, you know, computer-generated details to it. But it's it's old fashioned action filmmaking, and that's that's what Anderson does to me. Is he introduces he integrates newer technology into more classical style action filmmaking, and I I think he's really good at that. Sure, I can sure. I'm not gonna. I won't argue with you. It's it's late in the game. <laughs> um. Somehow we turned our Jason and the Argonauts discussion into our Three Musketeers uh, Part 2 discussion, but that's all right. Because you can't talk enough about Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> that's right. Next week we'll be discussing Resident Evil 5. Uh, I can't the, wait for Resident Evil 6. Yeah. It, I think it's filming now, according to IMDb. Yeah, it's it's going to be awesome. That's 2015, baby. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, with that, that's our discussion of Jason and the Musketeers. Uh we're going to listen to some Cream now, right? Yeah. Uh, I couldn't find or I couldn't think of any songs about Jason and the Argonauts, but uh, uh, Cream did a song about Ulysses, who was also a Greek guy who had an adventurous ride on a boat. So here are the tales of brave Ulysses. You thought the leaden winter would bring you down forever, but you rode upon a steamer to the violence of the sun.
Okay, that's it for our show this time around. We'll be back uh, in a week and a half, uh, around March 24th, March 25th, with uh, our baseball show, since the baseball season starts at the end of this month. Uh, We'll be discussing uh, Pride of the Yankees and the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, uh, which I'm really interested to see because it's finally going to explain why Lando Calrissian uh, decided to team up with Darth Vader um, and sell out his friend um, in The Empire Strikes Back. So I'm really interested to see that. You know, I don't think I've ever seen Billy D. Williams in a non-Lando role. Neither have I. I don't. I don't. No, wait. He's in Batman. He's in. Uh, he's in no, one of the. That's right. Yeah. He's in one of the Burton Batmans. But you're right. I think that might be it for me. Um, if you are in Seattle this week, this is a shameless plug on my part. <laughs> but um, if you're in Seattle, uh, actually over the rest of the month, um, I have co-created a uh, classic Hollywood genre uh, film show at the University Branch Library, which is my old stomping grounds. Um, so every Saturday at 2 o'clock, we're going to run free screenings. Uh, I will be there for a couple of them. I will be hosting this weekend uh, a film that we talked about on the very first episode of the George Sanders show and Sean, no, it's not drug war. Oh. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll be discussed or we'll be showing, uh, Fritz Lang's the big heat. Uh, it's free cause it's the library and libraries are awesome. And, uh, we'll be giving out free popcorn and I will introduce it. So if you're there and you listen to this show, which is totally not going to happen, but <laughs> you should come up and talk to me. Uh, and then the week after we'll be running, uh, a, a film that you and I ran for Metro classics, the lady Eve, Uh And we'll close the series out um, the last Saturday uh, in March with, uh, appropriately enough for Western Month, uh, John Ford's Stagecoach. And I will be there for that. So if you can make it to any of those, come on down. It's going to be super awesome. That's great. Those are three very good films. Yeah, we ran Top Hat last Saturday. Nice. Uh, My pick for this week is also in the Seattle area at the the SIF Uptown Cinema next weekend, March uh, 21st through the 23rd. 
They're playing uh, new digital restorations of uh, two movies that I really like a lot and one that I really want to see. It's uh, Orson Welles' The Lady from Shanghai, Werner Herzog's uh, Nosferatu the Vampire, and uh, William Friedkin's Sorcerer, which is the one that I haven't seen, and that's the one I'm going to. And I'm, I'm very, very excited. Isn't Othello coming out, too? Um, isn't there a restoration of Wells' Othello coming around the pipeline somewhere sometime? I, I have no idea. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll keep an eye out and let you know. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you can find us online at thegeorgesandersshow.blogspot.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at geosandersshow, and we have email, thegeorgesandersshow at gmail.com. Um, and I think we mentioned on Twitter... And when I say we, I mean you. Uh, that our Miyazaki podcast has come up uh, in the, you know, interim between these two shows. So uh, you can find that at where, Sean? Uh, Theyshotpictures.com. It, it's very long. Yeah, it's like it's like three hours long of us talking about Miyazaki. It, it, it ended up being about two hours and forty minutes. Oh well. It's a breeze, then, and that's and that's you know it, it's got a song in the middle though, so there's a good you know stopping point. You can just uh, you know pause when you hear the rose. There you go. Um, do you have anything else to talk about? Uh, no, I, I, think, <laughs> I think I think we got it covered. Uh, all right, I need to go watch a western. Okay. <laughs> so uh, yeah, see you next time. Here's George. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time.